ever heard of exorcism? Well, it's a stylized ritual in which the uh, rabbi or the priest try to drive out the so-called invading spirit. Uh, it uh, has worked, in fact, although not for the reasons they think. Of course, it's, it's uh, purely a force of suggestion. You know, the, uh, the victim's belief in possession is what helped cause it. So in that same way that belief in the power of exorcism can make it disappear. Welcome to the Rewind Movie Podcast. The following review will contain spoilers and may contain strong language. How do you go about getting an exorcism? If, um, if a person's, you know, possessed by a demon or something, how do they, how do they get an exorcism? Well, the first thing, I'd have to get them into a time machine and get them back to the 16th century. I didn't get you. Well, it just doesn't happen anymore, Miss McNeil. Um, yes, since when? Well, since we learned about mental illness, paranoia, schizophrenia, all those things they taught me at Harvard. Miss McNeil, since the day I joined the Jesuits, I've never met one priest who has performed an exorcism, not one. Today, as part of our throwback series, we'll be discussing The Exorcist. Starring Linda Blair. You really don't want me to play, huh? No, I do. Captain Howdy said no. Captain who? Captain Howdy. Who's Captain Howdy? You know, I make the questions and he does the answers. Alan Burstyn. I want you to tell me that you know for a fact that there's nothing wrong with my daughter except in her mind. You tell me you know for a fact that an exorcism wouldn't do any good. You tell me that! Jason Miller. I'm Damien Cowles. And I'm the devil. Now kindly undo these straps. If you're the devil, why not make the straps disappear? That's much too vulgar display of power, Karis. And Max von Sydow. I'd like you to go quickly across for the residence, David, and gather up the cash off for myself. Your services, purpose, no more. That's an holy water. I believe we should begin. Directed by William Friedkin. Why is Guru? Doesn't make sense. I think the point is to make us despair. To reject the possibility that God could love us. Hello and welcome to the Rewind Movie Podcast. What an excellent day for an exorcism. It's Gally in Glasgow. Your mother cooks socks in Hull. It's Devlin in London. Dimmy, why you do this to me, Dimmy? It's Patrick in London. Oh, Mum, can't we get a horse? It's Matt <laughs> in South Korea. Oh, welcome back, gang, and welcome back, listeners. Before I... Uh, continue on my opening monologue patrick very very close there <laughs> to a kind of greek lady speaking <laughs> <laughs> happy with that welcome back everybody today we are discussing william freakin's 1973 juggernaut the exorcist and we wanted to stay up front that we will be exploring our experiences our perspectives and our thoughts on the film in this episode there is so much information and film theory surrounding this one. We thought it best to be clear from the top. So we will signpost you to the many sources that we have seen. I'm looking at Matt there in particular and read in preparation for this episode. That sounds about right, gang, doesn't it? Well, there's a mega blog this time. And uh, if, if you go over to the, the Rewind site, there's a, there's a very long thing that I think is longer than my dissertation that's, that's not a blog that's an essay but but yeah i've cited all of the i've sort of um done hyperlinks to all of the the, the things that that helped me uh reference it but yeah i've I felt like i was possessed for the last 
couple of weeks. It's been very odd. It's been, it's been a big start to these 100, the sec, second century of, of reviews, isn't it? Terminator 2 and The Exorcist. See how you ignored Predators there, Patrick. Very clever. Have you? <laughs> <laughs> I wonder why. It's a palate cleanser. So this one's a big one. Um, and yeah. There is lots, isn't there? There's lots of trivia, there's lots of insight, there's lots of documentaries, books, scholarship. So we're going to try our best, aren't we, to um, bound it in our viewing and our experiences, which I think is the way that we do things anyway. But we want to just make sure that no listeners are coming in thinking that we're going to kind of give them the, you know, the play-by-play. Because it's, it's lower some expectations up. Yeah, let's just lower it right down to, wait a minute, four guys... Or guys are going to talk about what they think. I'm not sure I want to listen to that. They've probably read Commode's <laughs> book, as some of us have, you know, so we're not going to regurgitate. We're going to, you know, ho- hopefully take it somewhere new. Exactly. Exactly. Well, with that, then, let's go for some first experiences. Matt, I'm going to start with you. I don't want to say I was a believer, but I, I was raised very casually C of E, as with everyone in my village. And we'd all go to church and we'd do the Chris Stingle and we'd, we'd eat the jelly tots and all that stuff. We wouldn't really care about what was going on uh, in the very cold, depressing church. But um, I, I didn't really label myself uh, uh, an atheist until I was, I don't know, it was probably about 2004. So I felt like if I wanted to revisit this with a, with a very new attitude and see see what holds up, see what's still scary. and uh, And yeah, just dissect it. And have a look, um, uh, and have a look at it. If, if you're interested in first experiences, a lot of it's on the on the blog. But uh, this was an exciting one because it was banned for a while. Banned is probably the wrong word. Somebody in the basement will be telling me that it wasn't actually banned. It was uh, it was denied a certificate, or you know all that stuff. <laughs> you, you can read up on it all, um, but um, it was a film that you couldn't watch, and people would talk about oh my dad's got a copy my uncle's got a copy uh, we got a copy from germany and usually we'd be like oh you liar you haven't got it you, you nobody can get it and it wasn't until like 99 when they the bbfc gave it an 18 certificate and it, it was finally available to rent on on video and it was the last year of uh, um secondary school and i remember i must have been staring out of a window um, completely disturbed the next day. And my friend, Rob Hawthorne, who's a keen listener to the show, uh, asked me if I was all right. And we never asked each other if we were all right. We just weren't, you know, lads don't typically do that. But he was like, he was genuinely concerned that there was something up with me. And uh, it was because of the film. I was just replaying things and I was incredibly disturbed by it. But yeah, it was great. 1999, I finally got our hands on it and and watched it. It was a great year because we got to see the Texas Chainsaw Massacre as well, which was also unleashed at the same time. So 1999 was a terrific year for me for and for horror. How about first experiences, uh, Devlin? You look possessed. <laughs> I sound it today. Uh, same same year, I would have thought 1999 when the the, the video was finally released. I remember watching it at my mum's house, which um, for those who've been i'm not sure if any of you have visited my mum's old place um it was yep uh an extremely isolated farmhouse three to four miles away from the nearest actual road uh on a windy hill in north yorkshire so ideal place to be watching that film uh late at night lights down low possibly lights off sitting on the floor in front of the tv uh and i remember it being extremely powerful um and what's odd is that I think because of that, 
uh, it's a film that I haven't watched a huge amount of times in the years since. So I have very clear memories of it, uh, very strong visual memories of entire sequences. I remember going back um, as soon as I finished watching it to see whether I could freeze frame the, the demonic face during Karis's dream sequence. Ah, um, that was very much important. easier on DVD, not too easy yes. on uh, VHS. Not very easy on video, but I did manage it. And I remember that was for some reason very important to me to be able to look at that image, which is a little disturbing. But um, yeah, a film that I, I think that in the years since, not that I was scared of watching again, more a case of understanding that this is maybe not a film that if I were watching TV and I came across it 25 minutes in that I would stick around and watch because I didn't want to diminish the kind of that kind of hold that it that it has. It felt like something that needed to have a certain amount of ritual about it in order to watch it again. So, um, yeah, uh, 99 being an interesting time for a film like this to, to reemerge. And yeah, I was, again, 15, so kind of perfect, really. And that it had had such such build-up you know it, it was a film that was uh, um a bit of a rite of passage i think um how about you galley keen eared listeners will know that my dad was uh pretty laissez-faire <laughs> uh, he's not french um with uh with my viewing uh, as a child but this one was one that he did withhold uh which is interesting um and obviously withhold because he didn't need to because it was already censored or banned or not certif- uh, certified uncertificated uh, yeah I think the word certificated. Is. Mm. but but it Gally, it was available for a while and then they took it back mm, so yeah. i think it was seven years you could buy it so that's all these rumors about people having it were maybe true um i, I don't think my dad was that um you know he didn't have his fingers on the pulse uh, mm. of of what was being released or not but certainly this one i think i think uh, Devlin, you're absolutely right about the rite of passage because because it was withhold and also and we'll kind of get into it. We won't get into it too much because it's not that important. But there was a real mythology and lore about the film and the production and the kind of the fake stories that surrounded it. And because we're pre-internet, pre um, you know access to information and being able to discredit these things, they're kind of pervasive, aren't they? And you end up. Uh, sort of tout and shite basically at school like <laughs> oh yeah did you hear that the the girl that was in the exorcist is yeah. uh you know she killed herself uh like six months after filming you know, that kind of stuff was um yeah that was rife in my school so it was one of those films that had that allure and also there's a sense of like i don't know it's just dangerous isn't it um so i saw it i think it wasn't 99 it was a little bit uh i was a little bit older it was before university and interestingly and again similar to you devlin I had not revisited it until this week, wow. despite recognizing that it was an important text. Uh, and I, I wonder what that is. Um, but maybe, who knows, uh, that'll change after today. But we'll see. What about you, Patrick? It's, it's funny you say that about school. I had a similar thing at school. I, uh, firstly, I didn't watch it till I was about 22. Um, but I, really remember it's kind of the legacy of it in the 90s at school um i think i spoke about this before like because I, I remember something in the in primary school i don't know it's because patrick williams had a like pirated copy of it somehow but he was the guy who had all the films and he had sky and he had everything and he watched everything and there was a real reputation for this film i i remember it coming out again but of course 
Disney Child. I wasn't allowed to watch it. And it was... <clears throat> I, I grew up in quite the Catholic family. I was, I was an altar boy, a choir boy, whatever. And I wonder if that played some part... I don't know. I haven't spoke to my parents about it, but I wonder if that played some part in a dismissal of the film or uh, keeping it at arm's length somehow. I'd have been 13 in 99. I, I just... I, I don't know... It, because of that, it kind of went away. But, you know, as, as you mature, you read up on films. And um, I, when I got back from America in 2008, I went through this phase of, I just discovered computer exchange and went to buy a load of cheap DVDs. And I got into a real horror phase at the time. It was the first time I watched Don't Look Now and The Exorcist and Rosemary's Baby. I bought all them for really cheap. And they were ones I sat my like family down like right we're watching some what's supposed to be really important films and they're horror let's let's watch horror films um, and The Exorcist was one of them and I remember that actually the DVD was wasn't a very good copy and it had a scratch and it skipped I was really fucking pissed off so I had to go back and I bought another one and blah 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 blah, blah and watched it and he, I was really impressed with it then but for whatever reason like yourselves I hadn't revisited it till this week. Um, I haven't really done any reading on it till this week as well in prep for this. And all those years ago, it was just a film that I, I wonder if I was like taking off a list in a way, you know, and got to see The Exorcist. And I, um, I do, I, there's going to be things we're going to talk about today that I didn't contemplate at all back then. But one thing was true, even at 22, older than you guys when you saw it was it got under my skin. It unnerved me. And there were bits of it that, you know, put the hairs uh, standing up for me. And let's see if that happened again this week. I wonder if it's because William Freakin wasn't particularly cool and popular uh, in the 90s or in the early, in the 2000s, as in his star had massively waned and maybe that had something to do with it. I don't know, because it is interesting. Because I'm just thinking back now, Devlin, we never even watched this when we were at university and we had all those hours that this seems like exactly the sort of thing we would have we would have had a movie night for. The notoriety was like unparalleled. Also, I don't know if it's one of those things where you've seen it once and then you see the the parodies and the references and you yeah. just kind of go, "Well, I've seen well, a bit like the characters in the film. I've seen that movie." So, Patrick, would you please remind us and the listeners of the plot to The Exorcist? Amidst a noisy archaeological dig in Iraq, Father Merrin participates in the unearthing of some small artefacts, including a medallion of St. Joseph and a sculpture representing an ancient demon, Pazuzu. Before leaving Iraq for Woodstock, Father Merrin looks upon a statue of Pazuzu. Within the ruins, as two dogs fight loudly under the sun. Meanwhile, in the cold bedroom of 12-year-old Reagan in Georgetown, Washington, D.C., Mother Chris McNeil checks in on her daughter after hearing noises in the attic. Chris is an actress working on a film, Crash Course, directed by her friend Burke Dennings, who wraps the scene nice and early on set while Father Carris spectates in the crowd. Chris and Reagan's life at home is well-to-do and happy, but Carris is found questioning his faith and visits his stubborn mother, who's fallen ill in New York. He can't cut it anymore. Reagan can't sleep in her bed as it was shaking while more noises grow in the attic. Chris hosts a fancy party 
the likes of Berg and astronauts in attendance, and Father Dyer, who tells Chris that Father Karras' mother has died. He's their resident psychiatrist priest. Reagan is more violent now and changing, so he's taken to the doctors for extensive invasive tests, but they just don't seem to be finding the problem. Karras has a fever dream of his mother after the guilt of her dying alone. Flashes of dogs, St. Joseph medallion, and a demon face. His faith still rocked. Reagan is getting worse still, a house called by the doctors where she is burning up, thrown around her bed and throwing expletives and slaps to anyone who approaches, while an inhuman voice leaves her white eyes. The so is mine, before she's subdued to sedation. As Chris contemplates a different approach in a psychiatrist, she learns her friend Burke has been found dead, head spun 180 degrees at the foot of the stairs outside her house, just under Reagan's window. What else can Chris do? Science doesn't have the answer. Her daughter has someone seemingly talking from within. It's time to consider an exorcism. Father Karras is approached by Lieutenant Kinderman, who is investigating Burke's death and the desecration of the Statue of Mary in the church. Reagan's window under scrutiny. A similar-looking clump of clay found at the scene. Reagan uses clay. Lieutenant Kinderman talks to Chris. It's clear someone or something killed Burke, and maybe Chris knows it's someone inside Reagan who defiles Reagan's genitals with a crucifix. Let Jesus fuck you! Wrestling Chris moves objects around the room and moves Reagan's head around 180 degrees also, while taunting Chris in Burke's voice in a terrifying onslaught. Chris feels helpless, the possessor really taking its toll on those around Reagan. Every time they see her, it's worsening and too daunting to contemplate. When Karis discovers the possessor's talking backwards and marks on Reagan's skin reading, Help me! He's seemingly convinced, perhaps his faith coming back and purpose assured. He gets his permission from the church to perform an exorcism, but only if an experienced priest is in attendance also. Merrin! The possessor is not happy at the sight of Merrin, who wants, who warns Karis against conversation with the demon, rather getting straight to the act of facing it head on. The power of Christ compels you, the two priests cry, making signs of the cross and dousing Reagan in holy water, trying to ignore the demon's taunts. The demon is a liar, but the truth of Karis's mother affects him. The room falling apart, heads spinning, body ascending, Reagan's form showing the demon in front of her, in, upon her face. The restraints broke and Pazuzu appearing in full vision, unable to hide in Reagan's form as Merrin and Karis battle through the prayer. Karis is upset and Merrin takes over, excusing him. But as Chris asks if Reagan will die, Karis cannot let it happen. Entering the room once more, he finds that Merrin is dead and wrestles the demon who pulls his St. Joseph necklace off and demands the demon takes him instead, who leaves Reagan's body and starts to fight the demon's will to hurt Reagan, jumping out of the window to the same fate as Burke. When the recovered Reagan sees Father Dyer and his collar, she's compelled to kiss him on the cheek. What an excellent day for an exorcism. I need to take some nitroglycerin tablets <laughs> after that. Oh, sorry, it's a long one. It's uh, There's a lot going on. I think the first thing we should do, though, is, Matt, we should underscore versions right there's loads of them let's just let's just get that out of the way uh, there's three worth mentioning there's the theatrical cut um which is, is what was released in 1973 and then you've got uh the version 
You've Never Seen, uh, ridiculously titled, which uh, was released later, <laughs> which is not a director's cut, as we as we often discuss. A lot of these things are, a lot of the times the theatrical, the theatrical cut is the director's cut, and these extended versions are usually money spinners. And I'd argue that this is the same. But uh, after years of pestering, uh, William Friedkin, uh, the author of the book, uh, writer of the screenplay, Oscar-winning writer of the screenplay, and uh, producer of The Exorcist, William Peter Blatty, pestered Friedkin for years and years and years about putting everything back in, all the stuff that was removed, uh, whilst Friedkin was showing the film to Warners. And uh, I think it was John Kelly was the guy's name who suggested the 11 minutes that could come out that got it down to its theatrical length. So it's essentially William Peter Blatty's uh, preferred version, which um, Friedkin has kind of backpedaled on a little bit and uh, believes it to be the most definitive, which again, I would argue against. Uh, and then there's a third version, which is worth mentioning. Um, Patrick mentioned Rosemary's Baby before. Um, there's a character called Dr. Saperstein in that movie. And there's also a, a random anonymous or, or pseudonym stranger on the internet who recuts and um, uh, preserves certain films uh, as fan edits. And as a fan edit of The Exorcist, uh, a, a preservation cut by this guy, Dr. Saperstein. And, and he's, uh, the, the, the problem was the, the version you'd never seen, the, all of the colors have been changed, the color palette, the color timing. It's all different, as well as a lot of the scenes that have been reintegrated. So he's recreated the theatrical cut with the green, sickly Owen Roisman uh, photography, um, which is the, the version I've been watching since 2018 uh, when we watched it for Halloween here. Um, but again, we, we can get to, when we get to recommendations, we can talk more about which versions are actually out there. But the, the theatrical version would be the one that I would lean towards, Gally. That's what the synopsis, the, the story time is for, the theatrical. Right. I, I decided not to watch any other version uh, before today because I, I was going to find it interesting you telling me what the differences were. And you had the Blu-ray, is that right, Patrick? Yeah, I got a, a computer exchange coming to my head again, but this time a Blu-ray. It, um, it was £6 and it um, comes with a nice little introduction from Friedkin that you know says uh, digitally restored thing and... Devlin, you'll like the original one. On on the original DVD, there was a, a very Garth Marenghi style introduction where Friedkin appears in a, a Marks and Spencer's sweater and um, <laughs> sits on the arm of his couch and says, uh, "You are turn the lights down low and all that." Yeah, that's stuff. the one. That's the one. Oh, that's the one. Oh, good. Yeah, oh, they've put yeah. it back on. Well, that that's great. Um, watching him in the uh, in the in the fear of God, um, there is more than a touch of the Garth about him in that as well. <laughs> yeah. the, the the leather jacket creaking while he talks <laughs> is an especially <laughs> nice touch. Well, Matt, one of the one of the talking points you had, and I think we may as well start start where the film starts, which was because um, I completely forgot about it. Uh, was the whole Iraq sequence bizarre, isn't it? Max von Sydow is oh, just doing such incredible expressive work and also freaking storytelling wise in that opening sequence it's just ace my favorite moment is the juxtaposition between father marin having no qualms having two people with ak-47s like rushing out <laughs> and pointing guns at him and he doesn't flinch all in a day's work and then the moment the moment he sees bazuzu yeah 
the fear of so. God has just been struck and you go, wow, there you go. That's it. That's all I need to know. Um, but it's an interesting sequence. I mean, Matt, I got the sense from your notes that you were like, could it be removed? Is it necessary? Even up till like researching this one, I, I wondered, I was being a bit of a contrarian and I thought everyone says it's great, but do we need it? Can we not just come in on the, the cold blue of Georgetown, that shot that sort of goes across the bridge towards the house. And then we, we knock another 10, 11 minutes off. Then Merrin would only arrive in a in a taxi this is well isn't it a problem any i'm 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 actually going to argue for the prologue in a second but just as devil's advocate i mean it's kind of a problem anyway isn't it a problem that he disappears for the entire film and then just pops back at pops back at the end i i didn't think so and in that prologue in iraq there's Mm. the 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 ticking clock and the saint joseph's medallion the way the clock Um, stops which is very uh it's you're foreshadowing and he's holding the pazuzu and the Pazuzu and the Pazuzu statue, statue as well. Mm. It's the the relationship between the beginning and and the demon knowing who Merrin is. I quite uh, I'm I'm all for that. I hadn't thought it was um an expendable sequence at all. Actually, I hadn't considered that. Mm. Um, I like the relationship between the beginning and and the the on the cassette player the Merrin fear the priest the um mm. the clay uh. uh thing oh. that lieutenant kinderman finds at the bottom of the stairs mm, yeah. the the appearance of pazuzu the statue is the I bird that she makes s- that too the, yeah. the bird as well but um and and Karis's fever dream with the dogs with the the, the the relationship is really intriguing and i'm not wholly explained which you know is i'm not bothered by at all like it, there's it's... a lot to unpack with that patrick with the, the freaking calls it uh, symbiosis uh this i this idea that um i mean how does the saint joseph's medal get around Karis's neck what why, why is he wearing that at the end when it, um, reagan pulls it away uh and how how does the, why was that buried in iraq in the first place that would never be there and and why is Karis? Um, envisioning things from Merrin's past in his dream. How are these two things connected? It, it's just this great mm-hmm. big mystery that um, some some would argue makes absolutely no sense at all. But then we get we're going to get into this a lot more. But then faith is a mystery, and it's a question of. Well, that's what he says. Freakin says in, in his sound bites. He says this film is about the mystery of faith. He says it time and time again. Mm-hmm. I actually took the St. Joseph's Medallion at the very beginning as mm. someone from a previous priesthood or, or right. church uh, encountering the same issue, problem, uh, fight, I'll call it. And that's the remnants of a of another fallen soldier, uh, so to speak. Yeah. But I, the symbiosis between, yeah, the, the dreams, it's... I, I I don't know. It's cinematic language it's, as well. It's... I wanted to ask Devlin what he thought, and then I'll go into why I why I like it. What do you think, Dev? What I really loved about it is um, that, um, and I guess this is a difficult thing uh, uh, to to talk about because when you make a film, you just are trying to tell a story um, uh, as best you can in as affecting a way as you can. So, coming at this from the perspective of seeing this, probably I would say for the let's say second time. Um, the Iraq sequence I had a really clear visual memory of, but also had kind of excised it from the version of the head in that I had, like the version of the story that I remembered. And what was great about it was that that wrong footing that it does sets you up for the way in which the film is able to make these leaps in time and also juxtapose stories which um, 
it, it puts the story together in a way that I don't think that even in the seventies, when you had a lot more experimental structures in sometimes big studio films, um, this film being the template for a lot of things that came after it, I don't think anyone would be daring enough to leave us, the audience, with so many hanging threads for so long in a film. Um, so it kind of sets up the structure as being quite episodic, but episodic in ways that um, will thematically tie together really strictly. Is the concern there, Dev, that the the audience may have forgotten a lot of the things that they've seen at the at the beginning by the time he returns? Perhaps not in the 70s, but maybe now. I think that the whole thing is so kind of um, uh, striking that I do think that it, it sets that tone up, I think. I do think that it, it, it kind of establishes. Um, and it's, um, it's, uh, um, it's just so kind of bizarre. And, and it also establishes what we're doing with the soundtrack as well in an incredible way. Yeah. This, you know, the, this use of like the droning, horrible sounds. and That face-off with the dogs uh, fighting. It, it, yeah. The, either side of the sun, the setting sun is just, uh, that's the, everything the you guys need. guys on the anvil as well. And the, the mm-hmm. guy with the milky eye. Mm-hmm. Is, yes. I, I and the old lady the... in the carriage. She was 108 yeah. years old, Friedkin says on his well, brilliant commentary. Um, but it's all, it, Gally, do you, do you want to add to that? Can I add three points? Ooh, so I'm going, I'm going in strong for this prologue. Um, do you have a so thesis? I have a thesis, and I'm going to put it forward. Um, so first one, oh, I agree with everything that Devlin and Patrick have said, um, and I'm less interested necessarily in kind of the how does the coin get to Karis and what's the linkage? Because I think when you're, I think one of the strengths of the movie is in its slightly ambiguous we're not going to tell you everything. Some stuff is going to be left as a mystery, but isn't yeah. that fantastic when we're dealing with something about the mystery of faith? Um, so, you know, that kind of plays into that. From a from a thematic point of view, I think it's very important that we see Merrin as a as a archaeologist almost, hmm. because it feels like, like what a duality, right? So he's a man of faith, yet he is somebody in search of tangible, real history. So that's that contrast, but also every single character has that. So you look at um, Karis, man of faith, but he's a psychologist. Mm. So he's a priest, but he's also he's a He's got one foot in each camp, hasn't he? He's got one foot in each camp. Yeah, and you look at um, Ellen Burstein's character. She's a mother, loving mother, but she's has to be an actress. So mm. she's barely there. So you have, the, again, you have this duality of like, she's a loving mother, she cares for her daughter. But she's not, you know, she's not able to be a loving mother in the most conventional of ways. And there's all that duality is runs throughout the whole film. Um, the detective, who should be logical, is thinking supernatural. He's, a, he's like straight on right. to the idea that this is not a man falls downstairs, uh, simple, simple kind of death. So that's that's yeah. one thing. It sets up that duality. The best piece of irony there is that she goes to Karis and asks for an exorcism and he's the one who is uh yeah, the naysayer there he's the one yeah. that said this isn't done anymore and she's the atheist so mm-hmm. that's really interesting so there's lo- there's loads of that duality and i also think it's really important in the tone you know for the film that you essentially that it almost feels like um they're linked so if you went straight to georgetown then the idea that this mythical 
ancient evil could ever get to there. There isn't like a linkage. I don't know. You you almost no, feel right. like that would be a leap of faith. The fact mm. that you see the Iraq sequence feels like there is an evil somewhere on this planet, and it just it that makes it's capable it more, of traveling too. Don't it's you? capable of traveling, yeah. And I just think that those things are all set up in that prologue, and most importantly as well is Marin's fear of it. For me, anyway, what, the one most important thing is that this is going to be a battle that has raged on and on and on. And we know that from a personal point of view that these these two entities, Merrin and the demon, are going to face off again. Well, well right. they're the dogs, aren't they? They're, they're, they're the dogs fighting. It's the literal Absolutely. thing. But the standoff shot is fucking stunning. It could be the best shot the, in the film. It the could be. sound design of it, the, the, and Devlin touched there on, on the noises, and that just, we go straight from the, those noises to the noises in the attic, and it's a it's a real concurrent theme. It's I, I like the relationship as Galley said about the the far and the close, or the macro and the micro. As Galley said before, inside a house or a big open ruin. Um, do, sorry, Matt. Do, do you actually like? I see your point against the. No, I'm just waiting I to understand what you mean. think. Yeah, I um, something, but like, do, would you prefer the film without it, or, or does it? No, particularly this time. Now that I'm older, and and I, I think originally it wasn't something that I remembered that much of. Uh, interestingly, it's not actually Owen Roisman that shot it. It was um, a, Billy Williams, who uh, was a British cameraman. He went on to do Women in Love and Gandhi later on. Um, but Owen Roisman shot the rest of the film. He did the French Connection and uh, Network, and um, and but the photography of the of the prologue is it's probably the strongest stuff. Uh, I mean, it's it's hard to to match that once you're in a house, I guess. But um, and and a lot of the documentary realism of the um, the outdoor stuff. But um, my my argument for it would be that it's a, a premonition, and that's the the word that Friedkin took from the book. Because when Blatty wrote the first draft of the script, he left this out entirely. He just started in Georgetown. He he didn't feel it was necessary. And uh, Friedkin's first note was, Look, I'm not interested in that. I'm, I want to adapt the book as as is. I want everything in. Um, and, and he felt it was crucial. And it took me a long time to understand it. And again, like dissecting it is really interesting. Patrick mentioned the guy, the hammering and the milky eye. That's somehow connected to, to what happens to Reagan. You, you've also got this idea of the sounds kind of come back when you're in the medical procedures. There's a, there's a lot of foreshadowing there. There's some interesting stuff. There's a very wide shot with a lot of bowed figures and he's walking past the bowed figures. And there's a lot to, to read into. Um, but the, really the word is premonition because he, you can link the clock and uh, holding the Pazuzu statue as the clock stops. He knows that his life is going to end. He knows that this is the final duel. You could imagine a studio now, if you were making the Exorcist and the, the 1973 version never existed, let's say for hypotheticals, you could say, well, if we withhold the Exorcist, how much powerful is it then when they turn up and then subsequently die? All of a sudden, mm. the audience will be like, oh, shit. So you could argue that that would be a way of, you know, you're bringing more power to the character because we've never seen them. But mm. I, for, for me, it, like I say, it's about the 
the themes that run through mm-hmm. and that setup. And you're right, premonition's a great word for it because it is foreboding, foreshadowing, all of those fours. It's yeah. happening in those first ten minutes. What I really love is is how um how much time we spend with with characters kind of individually in parallel, kind of chopped together, and it takes so long for them to to converge within mm. the story that mm. it, it gives us so much kind of that we spend so much time with the um with Karis and um it's exactly the sort of thing that I think if you were constructing a screenplay these days along the lines of the screenplay bibles and with a group of you know executives breathing down your neck as far as like get to the fireworks <laughs> factory like you're not going to be allowed <laughs> to 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 follow father Karras into his elderly mother's house and no. dress a wound on her leg and then for him to not come into the story so far down down the line to not meet chris until so far into the film and to not meet Karis until like the 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 final what quarter of the film um and but it means so I, much I, more I, when they finally do meet doesn't it because it's been hanging over it the whole time well it's it's yeah. a it's a coalescing isn't it and um mm. and this is what reminded me a little bit of jaws is that you know we see robert shaw's quint early in the movie he, he makes a little appearance, mm. makes a, an impression, and then disappears, and then comes back in. The seventies, let's let's just say for this for this viewer, um, was <laughs> the height of American movie making. If only because there are there are dangers we can talk about uh, auto theory and some of the sort of dangers that come with that, or some of the the things, the offshoots of it. But as far as experimenting and just allowing audiences to fully experience a film as opposed mm. to being handrailed through and Devlin you're absolutely right so the Karis stuff and this is where my personal perspectives come in culturally that was incredibly universal for me it really resonated and it's partly down to the fact that you know for listeners that are not aware in Greek culture you look after your your elders and so it's not we're, we're obviously from the uk um we have uh, i don't want to get too deep into it but we have like a care home system um in greece there are but only for those that are you know so ill that you are unable to look after them um it is you know kind of cultural taboo to not look after your elders um and mm-hmm. you see Karis wear that the whole time obviously in america um, but his mother is an incredibly traditional, conventional Greek mother. And in, and to the point where she's so stubborn that she doesn't want to leave the shithole in Manhattan that she's currently living in. And Karis, instead of doing the right thing by him and his mother, which is to just stay with her and maybe operate in a parish nearby, he's decided to go to Georgetown. Um, and you, you see him wear that throughout the whole movie. And uh, is it Jason Miller? Yeah, just mm. what a performance! Like he Incredible. is, he he looks so browbeaten. And her too, Gally. Bo- she she boxer. feels real to me. She feels like yeah. a real person. Even down to like when he's eating dinner, just it's something about the way yeah. it's played. And and yeah, well, yeah, we could do that is when it... we get to cast. But he he was actually a playwright. He wasn't even an actor at the time. I, I think he'd he'd um, he perhaps been in something, but. Um, uh, Friedkin saw him on the stage, I think, or saw him backstage. Uh, I didn't. I didn't research what he'd done, but he, he was definitely certainly a playwright, and he was actually offered taxi driver after this. And and uh, I, I don't know what happened there. Mom, I could take you somewhere where you'd be safe. You wouldn't be alone. There would be people around. You know, you wouldn't be sitting here listening to a radio. Akusadimi, the babu putena. 
Is it too early to um, start talking about like, you know, thematic meanings and stuff that you read into the film? Because uh, just while we're on this... Uh, just go, just the, do it, man. The, the, the weight of guilt that, that, that uh, Father Karras is carrying for mm. uh, not being able to care for his mother. There was um, the fact that uh, Reagan, when she becomes fully possessed, um, is kind of like an elderly person. And there's, there's this fear of... Uh, Karis's mother when she goes into she's basically hospitalized and it's in a, a, a one of those kind of terrifying 70s insane asylums with the chicken wire on the windows and the people have lost themselves reagan has lost herself completely she's been occupied by another force and i feel like um uh, a lot of the thematic resonance of this film and maybe why this one persists so much and, and feels so powerful versus films which probably cover the same topic but um, maybe do so in a much more um, narrow way. This one feels to me like um, the terror of like um, total reliance in a way, or like the terror of feeling like obligation. This this kind of fear that we have that um, we may have to completely dedicate ourselves to looking after somebody who may not even recognize themselves, may not recognize us. Um, the the fear that we're not going to do it right, the um, the guilt that we carry that we may reject, or if not reject, we may feel um, uh, resentment for having to look after somebody, and uh, the the relationship between a mother and a child is 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 the one part of it, and then on the other part is the relationship between a man and his elder, but it's like it's it's just this. Um, yeah, the the weight that is that it's going to take, what it's going to take from you, what it's going to take from them, it's just it's the um, it's such a sort of fundamentally scary thing that even taken out of the context of it being about you know religious possession. There's two things there, Dev, about like because Gally mentioned uh, that there's a true to life case here that it was actually a little boy, and all of that stuff becomes possible if you make the 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 possessed child a girl because it. You know, the, the the connection between Karis and Karis's mum and her being female are all connected, and also her the demon saying your mother's in here with us, all all of of, of that stuff. But also, you, you're right in that it allows him to atone for his sins because he manages to rescue Reagan, who is kind of embodied as his mother, if you choose to read it the way that you've just described. And uh, that that sacrifice becomes more meaningful if it's tied to to the fact that he couldn't help his mother, but he can help this this girl. Well, there's a key line for I didn't pick up on earlier in the week, but this morning watching it, Merrin's gone back in the room and he's excused Karis, who's struggling with the situation. And Chris says to um, to Karis to to Dimmy, um, mm. is she going? Is Reagan okay? Is she going to die? fully believing her daughter's going to die. She doesn't know how an exorcism's going to end. But the, the look that um, Karis gives her and the work from Miller there says mm. everything about his relationship with his mum. It's like, 
his mum's died and he's left her alone and scared. He can't let this happen. He feels responsible. It's it's a fucking brilliant moment at, at the end that you know sends him upstairs to it, and that's that's I completely yeah. read that Devlin like that's completely there. Yeah, the the, the relationship between Reagan and his mother in, in the. Um, uh, incarceration you know she can't look at dimmy when he's approaching her she's tied to the bed in in the hospital and she's all you know because she's speaking another language as well it's the, the, all the oh um, there's uh, also one um shot which is clearly uh, not clearly but i would say that only dimmy sees is his mother strapped in mm-hmm. the bed with the oh, uh, with incredible. the white light there's a lot of stuff there that we could get into about who sees what uh commode um tends to explain away the head turning all the way around as that's only something that Ellen Burstyn witnesses. And he's trying to put the film into the category of something like Rosemary's Baby, where the supernatural elements can be entirely removed. Uh, and I think that's a complete mistake on his part. Mm-hmm. I, I think that um, Dimmy is the only one that sees his mother in the bed. And perhaps... Marion is the only one who sees the stone Pazuzu statue looming mm, over yeah. the, the bed. It's, it's yeah. a matter of perception and, and, and who is seeing what and what is real and, and what isn't. But, you know, you, you can really go deep on that, on that stuff. But like, but stuff like the bed shaking and the levitation and, and it happened. The, yeah. You know, Absolutely. constant voices that feels like that is that's documented. Well, there's Sharon, there's the girl who's helping out at, at the house. She sees the help me. Um, emerging on the uh, on a, on a belly, and uh, they both witnessed furniture flying around and and uh, all this stuff. So there is a supernatural element. You cannot remove it entirely. No, you can't. And the way that freaking um, kind of creates that sort of doubt, or as we escalate, is that there are reasonable bits of information that could be could be Reagan could be could be possession and we are as we're watching it it depends and this is where the film challenges you and in in no way am i saying that this is like a a a religious text to say right if you watch this and you believe it's demonic possession then you must therefore be a person of faith it's more that as you're watching the film depending on what you um what you interpret will determine where you think or the meaning of the film by the end of it so for example um, when Reagan starts swearing, well, what was the scene preceding it? It was her mother shouting at her dad, and she could yeah. overhear the language. Now you could argue, right? Well, was that Reagan? You know, as any child does, mirroring their parents, or is that the the demon uh, sort of coming out? So, mm-hmm. and there's lots of those uh, sprinkled throughout, which is what I think is so smart. And can we talk about freaking? Because one of the things, and, and the reason why this, all of this ties together, people say, well, I've seen, and it's written um, in theory that, you know, it's a documentarian style. I think that kind of undersells what he does. He's almost like an investigative journalist, I think. Obviously, he utilizes a kind of documentarian style of filmmaking until an action sequence. He works on two spectrums, doesn't he? Which is mm. like super authentic and then mad. Uh, on the other end and so whenever you have an action sequence it's like it's almost a jolt because you're like wait a minute i've just been watching something that feels incredibly grounded and then all of a sudden yeah like i just watched uh, to live and die in la and it's exactly the same um french connection has elements of what you're yeah. talking works in about, extremes though. doesn't he that's his that's his thing but he, he treats everything like well i need to get to the 
root cause of why something is. And that's the investigative journalist bit. He's not like a movie and not a filmmaker that is going to embellish unless he can justify. And that's, that's, that's throughout the whole film. So characters do things and everything feels motivated. Even the setting, you know, Chris's single mother and living well on her own and well to do. And there's no agenda about the missing like father through through the possession there's the phone call certainly but there's no true explanation of what happened there and the, the or making that a reason for anything well you know uh, the captain howdy thing is supposed to be a reference to howard and howard is the name of the father and this idea that there is an absent father and through the ouija board which is again a, a I'm not too sure how much the Ouija board has to do with it. It does move on its own. We we witness another supernatural, you know, unless there's a, a magic trick going on there. <laughs> yeah. uh, we did one in Leeds and nothing moved, but, um, uh, <laughs> but I also didn't get possessed. So, you know, swings and roundabouts, but uh, the, yeah, that could be linking into the absent father. Uh, also, there's a bit in the book where they say, uh, is Howard coming home? Is the, is the dad going to, come back because she's getting all the medical tests and um, uh, Chris McNeil says uh, why bring one, another devil into this why bring another demon in when we're trying to get rid of one already so there's this thing hanging over that um, the, the father had perhaps done something wrong that there are and, and you can leap to conclusions but there are a lot of abuse themes in The Exorcist you wonder how much uh, it, that that's unsaid is actually going on. You know, when Burke goes up to her room, why is Burke in there? In in the book, it's because Burke hears some some screaming, I think, and he goes up to investigate because he's left alone with her at that at that point. But in the film, it's it's left it's very ambiguous as to why Burke is actually in there and what's he what's he doing with Reagan because uh, we never see that death scene or we don't see anything. I'm just going to go um, to other other bits that are like could be, could not be. You know, the crucifix. We don't ever find out who who left that. I think we have suspicions, possibly Carl, um, or possibly yeah. um, the other maid. In the book, who, it's Carl. Yeah, or it could be the other maid who also seems yeah. like uh, she's devout. She's she's a believer, and they've been living. You know, the, again, unexplained, but kind of makes sense in the setting that they would be freaked out. They are there being paid to deliver a service. And that's going on upstairs. Yeah. Maybe they're thinking about taking things into their own hands, you know, before Chris gets there. Mm-hmm. And because they're going down the, uh, the the kind of scientific route, which again, this is the freaking duality stuff, is that ritualistic process of the experiments, which is possibly, for me, <laughs> there's some shocking imagery with Reagan and the cross um, and self-mutilation. What? But that whole hospital stuff is... Uh, arteriogram galley was the bit that had people passing out. A lot of people thought all the people in the cinemas were um, passing out from the demonic possession stuff, the, the the green vomit. But it was the very realistic depictions of medical procedures that were really... Yes, the popping of the vein. Yeah. Oh, God, that really got me as well. That really got me. I didn't remember that. And it just kept I don't remember worse. that at all. There's another bit where the, the machine is going around her. Uh, like oh, a, yeah. That's a the last strange... kind of cause. The last um, examination. Yeah, it's horrible. It's the noise. The noise is really intense as well. The the way they deal with the passage of time as well is so 
kind of crushing because sometimes you'll realize that like fucking hell like five weeks have gone by yeah and the and and it's yeah. just it's gone by in a in a in an edit but you can see it on ellen burston's face you can hear it in her voice you can just oh in her costume do you see it? she has a head yeah. yeah kind of a head scarf and glasses because she has the bruise after she gets slapped yeah. so she's gradually transforming into this other person who's just mm. completely hopeless yeah, freaking freaking mentioned it that um she's giving less fucks about her own appearance as she also kind of steadily declines along with her daughter, which again, it's all it's all really good stuff, isn't it? And her performance, can I just say, like the anchor of the movie, like unbelievable. Like just you everything her struggle is like I am not a mother. Uh, but my God, did I, did I identify with that kind of struggle of like helplessness and also like frustration, like her frustration is palpable. Um, she doesn't mean to be hard ass, does she? She's just literally like, what else can I do? Well, that, that's, we've talked about what you can relate to and we've all probably been in hospital or we've at least had a jab or something. And, uh, you know, that's that's the stuff that got people. It's um, it's the kind of the 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 terrifying mundanity as well of long term illness, which is that, um, obviously, films especially tend to represent these things with you know wailing and gnashing of teeth, and or or on the other hand, it's like you know this kind of valiant struggle against it. Whereas, you know, the reality of death and dying is mostly like just terrifyingly boring because it just keeps going and it's it's just a kind of um and it's 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 always so clinical and matter of fact as well which is like you're saying about the way that the doctors deal with them because there is no other way to deal with it and i think that that's why i mean that like what i find that the you know that kind of core to the film that's being so scary is like the responsibility that is put on you as a person and the idea that i'm probably not up to it or that I, I I would be unable to deal with this situation, but if even if you're unable to deal with it, that situation is still happening to Chris throughout. And and what's made worse is that we know that she's genuinely possessed, and all of the procedures are for naught. Quite frankly, we really don't know much about it at all, except that it it starts with a conflict or a guilt, and it leads to the patient's delusions that his body has been invaded by some alien intelligence uh, uh, spirit if you will look i'm telling you again and you better believe me i am not going to lock her up in some goddamn asylum right it's our and i don't care what you call it i'm not putting her away i'm sorry you're sorry jesus christ 88 doctors and all you can tell me with all of your bullshit is there's a great youtube video i'll put in the playlist called The Cultural Impact of the Exorcist. And it's just documentary cameras documenting what went on when it was shown. And there's a lot of people coming out within 10 minutes. And it's like, well, there's nothing scary in the prologue. So either it's bullshit or some kind of PR, or uh, which I believe it to be originally. They were, they were planting ambulances outside the the cinemas and things. And they were saying pregnant women don't don't come in and don't watch it. Um, and it's not for the faint of heart and all this stuff. And and I think it started that way. And then it gradually began to spread because even when my mum and dad went to see the film in 74, separately at the time, uh, my mum went with her uh, college friends and she said someone fainted in her screening, someone vomited in her screening. And it was just this, this weird thing that just uh, caught on 
a sociological phenomena they called it and uh if, if you hear that other people are doing it it's going to happen in your screening too it's a peculiar yeah yeah mm. do you think that, like I'm not, I'm not trying to ridicule those people that go to like deep deep south pastors who kind of mm. touch them on the head and then just faint but it, there is almost like a a willingness you know, it's a bit like people that say mm. that they get hypnotized yeah you yeah. willfully allow yourself well if you believe in god or believe in the devil this film is going to impact you in different ways that was kind of what i was getting at in terms of yeah. my very gentle religious upbringing compared to my sort of ardent atheism now where i have real issues with religion but um it's still a scary film but for very different different reasons i got a sense from Freakin that he was showing us because as i say i see him more as an investigative journalist so he takes everything at face value i don't feel like he is necessarily a man of faith i don't know uh, if he has got any religious leanings i believe he's jewish uh and i i i'm i don't think he i i think maybe agnostic when he made it but there's there's uh, since a been a... for that <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there's since been a turnaround uh he made a documentary about a real so again so-called real possession uh the name escapes me but again it's kind of tail coating the the exorcist uh but um i believe when he made it agnostic although i'm not 100 percent, but william peter blatty obviously is is um a devoutly catholic yeah well i mean and, and obviously i think you could um in the movie, you can probably detect, but instead of looking at it in uh, terms of religion, because obviously there's more than one faith, um, I saw it more as like a, a kind of wanting to return to kind of conventional norms, and that was like the the kind of the panic of the of the story. You know, Chris, single, well, father removed. Uh, we don't know the situation. But um, we've got Karis, you know, with the mother, again, a tradition that has been lost through ge a generation, um, you know, and just the one of like returning back to the elementary family or as we would call it, the nuclear family. Um, I don't know what you thought, but that's what I took from it. Well, that's that's something that comes up in, in lots of uh, blockbuster films and has come up in blockbuster films that we've covered, right, where um, a lot of writers will revert to this kind of, you know, this assumed baseline of the norm as if this is the natural order of things and that you know like a terminator 2 being an example where you know it's we're resetting a family structure a traditional family structure aliens is about resetting a traditional family structure and um uh it's interesting that um in the uh theoretically i'd thought similar and what i find interesting is that the text of the film didn't seem to um, suggest that to me that, you know, this idea that somehow Chris was being punished for her libertine lifestyle, that she was swanning off and, you know, raising a, a, a daughter no longer in it. But I can understand that the, um, the description of the plot does sound like that. It does sound like why this little girl, well, she's being raised in a godless single parent. Home. Well, there is the question where they're sitting on the stairs there. That's not in the theatrical and uh, th th they sit in silence in the theatrical. But in the longer cut, um, Karis says to Merrin, why this girl? It makes no sense. And Merrin says, I think the point is to make us despair. So uh, again, that moves us away from that and into, it's not an arbitrary thing. It's, it's really that, the people are being tested, particularly Karis is being tested by this. 
Reagan may not even be the primary uh, target of the demon. She's just a conduit for, for getting to everyone else under that, that roof and really making them despair and uh, have absolutely no faith in, in anything. That, that's it. It's a breakdown, isn't it? It's not, it's not a punishment. It's the breakdown, but that's where the film, we already seeing a man, uh, a priest whose faith tested to the point of fighting back or something, but uh, you might've just said it, but with Chris turning to religion, against science is the was wasn't the film kind of you can see it it, it was uh lambasted by people who thought it was too gross for religion or people who said actually this is a, a victory for catholicism against you know good versus evil and it's yeah it's despair it's torment it's the the, the devil's temptation to to bring one down and to you know the grind them down to to their level but hmm. i i think um, blatty's approach is that if if there's a devil then there must be a god and if you can if you can show all of this stuff then what it actually does is is enhance people's faith but to me to me a lot of it backfired and i think uh he he doesn't see and also freakin doesn't see how anyone could think that the devil wins at the end of this but I, I can completely see how people would would read it that from from, from the theatrical cut. If you look, he's managed it, to kill two priests. Like, I mean, he he's he's lost the battle in a way, but he's won the war because look look at the chaos that he's caused for no reason, for other than just his own amusement. You know, the chaos, the trauma. Um, mm. I, I suppose that that's where the film, you could argue, or in the story, because well. We don't know, but we think we know that Reagan's got like a kind of sense memory of what's happened. So she doesn't. Chris says she doesn't remember anything at the end to the to the other father. Forgive me, I've forgotten his name. Father um, Dyer. Father yeah. Dyer. Yep. Yeah. Um, but she kisses him when she sees the dog collar. I agree with you, Gally. She remembers something, even if it's like a, a remnants of a dream. She remembers something. Something. Yeah. Which again would mean that there's a little bit more power in that and just on your point patrick i mean um this is probably slightly simplistic but that sounds like a for me that's it's a simplistic reading to say that this film uh did uh for catholicism what uh top gun did for fighter jet pilots <laughs> it's not quite the same is it um and, and this is where this is our perspectives i think um, i'm not going to diminish anyone else's um um kind of viewing and they're taken away from the film but from my perspective the religious element it only kind of heightens and kind of adds a layer of mystery because religion by its definition is about faith. And uh, no matter what your kind of religious beliefs, the film is challenging you as you watch these characters because, you know, they are carrying guilt and that doesn't necessarily to be Catholic guilt. Um, they have, they, you know, they know that they've got to right wrongs. And the reason why I wanted to go back to that conventional nuclear family is that, you know, obviously these are priests, also named fathers. Uh, they come in, and then there's a self-sacrifice at the end, uh, which I I don't know, kind of reestablishes the order because there is an absent father. But could we dissect that that moment slightly? Yeah, yeah, let's do it. There was a bit of a point of contention as to whether Karis should have the demon face when he throws himself through the window. Or, or because what actually happens in the film is he says, come into me. 
the demon is transferred over to him and then you see his point of view as he's about to choke her and, and kill her. You see his perspective. He's got the yellow eyes at that point. He does, which is uh, on your version, Patrick, there's uh, the, the moment where he shifts from yeah. uh, demon back to him. Oh, it's done a lovely di- uh, it's done digitally. on his face. It's done in, really well. in the oh, original, okay. that's the only difference in your... No, that's the only difference in your version. In the other one, it's just a jump cut. It's a straight jump cut from him in the makeup to him in not not in the makeup. Uh, so, and and then there was a point because it's a big point of contention because in Catholicism, suicide is it obviously yeah, sends yeah. you hellbound. So, uh, if he's if if he is shifting back to himself. Where is, first of all, where is the demon? Even Freakin confesses this makes no sense. And then he throws out of, throws himself through the window to his death when he's back as, as Karis again. He's not the demon when he goes through the window. But the, I think there's a couple of things on that. I consider this. I hadn't, you know, I actually hadn't considered the demon not being in the body. That's, um, that's a good point. But basically Jesus died to atone for our sins and that was in God's form. And there's, that's kind of the crux of my argument there, that it's not the demon within, but it's, um, uh, it, it, it's the dismissal of, and it's, again, it's about how the demon affects those around you and what it drives you to do. There's, if we want to go deeper, there's the whole thing about Reagan is going through trauma and trauma of an event that some people could relate, you know, I, I like the notion that this film is whatever you take into it and, and bring mm. to it, you get out of it. Like Galley put in his notes about Reagan being a rape victim uh, and those that, that element there. And you could read it that way. And it's people succumbing to their guilt. And I think this is a very important thing and the atonement of sin and everything there from a religious aspect for Karis to um, atone for his sin or his mother dying. And he thinks dying in an absolution and his last rites and the penitential right is a very important thing for yeah. his character to, to end this film. And I think it's better that it's not the demon, that it's not the demon's actions that do it. It has to be Karis right. um, for me to, 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 to submit himself that way. And it's what he's been driven to. And Gali said that, you know, from the war, yeah, the, the demon kind of won that way, but also you, you, um, to to succeed, humans should not like give in to the demon and allow them to possess you to whatever demon that is, whether it's man mm. or or uh, which is the reading there, the rape and the trauma. And it's did, did he that, find his faith again it. in that moment in order he to did. force the demon out of himself? And, and I think he therefore... found his faith before that, to be quite honest. And that's the faith restored drives him into it when he, sees he screams Marin, no, doesn't he? He screams no, and then it it, van- it vanishes. Yeah. But the to, no is to not harming Reagan. It's a it's a resolute standing against yes. evil. No, it's no. I will not succumb to this. It's. It's a, a empowerment. You could throw it both ways as well. It's no, you you will not take her. You know, there's lots of different ways you can take that. No, and again, that's one of the things that I think the the strength of the film is that there is no 
well, this is what it is. There's also the you know the last temptation of Christ kind of element, and and the the walking of um, uh, thirty days. That we're in Lent currently. It's a very good time to talk about this film. The, the temptation, the the devil on the shoulder. There's all of that going through. It's very. I mean, I'm talking quite a lot from religious aspects, but it's yeah, t- temptations there. There's there's trauma. There's guilt. It's all. A culmination within that scene and I'm, i prefer and i'm happier that it's dimmy that jumps rather than the devil yeah. pushing him or I, I think they talked about it for they, they said it was a couple of weeks they were trying to figure out should it be him or the or the demon and because it changes the meaning doesn't it it's the subtle thing like that and even within the I context haven't. of the film the dramatic irony of we've seen bert fall from that window but, was he pushed but um, but is it Bert oh, or is it Bert, Bert and Ernie? Burke. Uh, uh, Burke, Burke uh, Dennings, yeah. It sounded like Bert. I might have been a dickhead, sorry. No, 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 no. I think I did say Bert. You bloody Nazi. He's Swiss as well. It's not on, is it? Isn't that one of the most disturbing things where she takes on Burke's voice? Isn't that just one of the scariest things? That and when he's, when the demon screams Merrin. When he first arrives, yeah. God, it went through me. It really should have, yeah. Mine was the uh, the moment when Karis comes back into the room when Meryn's dead. Oh, oh my bed. God, yeah. Oh. And Ray she's in the corner of the bed. In the corner of the bed with just this kind of very just dead expression. And then it turns into what looks like it could be tears and then becomes this kind of mocking laughter. And that's what drives Karis to... to Choke the smacker in the face. You son of a bitch! Take me! Come into me! God damn you! Take me! Hinman's really interesting entrance there because he says the last time we see him before he comes back at the end, he says, I'll come back when Reagan's better. And then he appears at the door. When he over the door, the look on his face is so fucking bizarre and kind of creepy anyway. But I love the idea that he knew she was better somehow. But yeah, I read into that what you will. I really like that character. And I think the, the murder mystery not only adds like... Do you like Columbo? Is that like? I mean... Well, yeah, I, I did hear Freakin basically say that... Uh, the people of producing the Columbo owe him like at least 20 quid or something. But I mean, fair enough. Uh, my, uh, my, my wife loves you. Yeah. My, my wife doesn't like watching movies. Do you want to come watch a movie with me? Um, <laughs> but I, um, I, I think it's important because again, it's almost like um, ticking off all of the normal systems of logic, right? So you have science and then you have this detective who is obviously going to, you know, crimes are committed by beings beings are you know motivated by normal things money love whatever mm-hmm. and i just love the fact that he immediately after one conversation <laughs> 
has kind of cottoned yeah. on to the idea. And also, obviously, looking at the body at the bottom of the stairs, Burke's body, bloody Nazi bastard. Um, <laughs> that, 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 that he is already kind of, uh, like, through the old Sherlock Holmes thing of, like, the most illogical is probably the logical, uh, has gone, yeah, probably possessed, actually. I think. Um, <laughs> there's so there's like a great many pauses on the stairs. It's like, wait a minute. I did, I did <laughs> see a... something in the long grass. There's a, a, a very well-covered scene I was going to put in, in favourite scenes, but I have two, so I'll, I'll mention one now. It's where uh, Kinderman and Ellen Burstyn are having their discussion, and, and she knows that Reagan is a killer. She knows, well, it, you know, through the possession, she knows that um, that the demon is responsible for killing Burke, and there's this investigation going on, and she says, "Oh, can I get you another cup of coffee?" And he's like, "Oh, yes, please. He's going to stay longer." <laughs> and then there's this great uh, coverage where um, there's very slow zooms um, between the two of them. Oh, uh, yeah. As, yeah. As, as they're having that um, uh, that conversation, and I, I thought that was just uh, excellent um, d- dramatic coverage, and uh, Roisman. Uh, doing his doing his thing with the and he, he asked for the autograph and I thought the significance of the autograph yeah. was it was almost mirroring the way that Karis um, when he was asking permission for the exorcism Ooh, goes to okay. the priest and essentially kisses the hand I don't know maybe I'm being ah. I'm reading too much into it but like so she's a figure of um, kind of importance to him he goes to the movies and what are the movies mm. they are stories right and what's religion well for some people they are stories um they're you know stories about uh to kind of tell you how to be and and that was i was trying to link in because all the the meta like movie within a movie mm. like so what is the significance of this i really hate to ask you this but for my daughter could you please give an autograph of course uh where's the pencil right here <laughs> oh she'd love it and what's your name? I lied. It's for me. <laughs> the spelling is on the back. Kinderman. Okay. Well, you know that film you made, um, Angel? Oh, yeah. I saw that six times. Really? <laughs> Thank you. You're a very nice lady. I didn't ask you, guys. Did you watch the longer, longer version, not the theatrical? Yeah, I, I watched the what's it, the version that I never saw, but I did see. <laughs> <laughs> the version we never should have seen. There's a coda where where they have a chat at the end. Uh, when we get to Critics Corner, there's an issue, but uh, it, it really sort of. Um, I, I think Blatty was trying to suggest that the spirit of Karis is still alive through Dyer, and uh, it's more of an all's well that ends well, which I don't like because i don't want this film to have that ending but coupled coupled with it does is this um i read about the saint joseph's medallion being handed over as well is that the same ending it's given and then it's given back it's returned yeah in, in the longer yeah. version oh is it is it um so they bring back the conversation that he has with Karis. Is yeah, that... he he asked the father yeah. Dyer if he wants to go to the cinema. Yeah, that's what I was trying to get at with the. That's what Blatty was trying to get at, really. I think by connecting Dyer and and Karis. But there was a peculiar thing where Friedkin, after the release in the seventies, which was unpre- unprecedented, said to the studio, "I want to 
uh, add one shot at the end of the film, which would have been Father Dyer when he's at the stairs, that what they call the Hitchcock steps, which has become the Exorcist steps now. Uh, and he sees a figure ascending the stairs and we can't quite figure out who it is, but um, it's suggested that it's Karis. And Dyer looks down and smiles. And again, it could be a matter of perception. Is he really there or is Dyer just seeing him? Is That's he alive in some... Well, Completely, yeah. It's Is it really happening or is it just his perception? Uh, is it just him coming to terms with it? But uh, I'm, I'm not a fan of that gentle ending. I like the ambiguity of uh, Dyer just trying to figure these things out, looking at the stairs, looking up at the window. And um, it's it, it's not quite an all's well that ends well, but Reagan's alive. And it, it matters that the victory came at extraordinary cost because it underscores the importance of it. I, I do find it an interesting thing that William Peter Blatty being such a, a man of faith um, Matt, when you were saying that they were, you know, planting ambulances outside and kind of making a bit of a allegedly like these Willy, these William Castle esque like little marketing tricks, I find it interesting that I find a lot of this film fascinating because I I like Matt was brought up with little to no kind of direct kind of faith really. Um, it wasn't really part of our household when I was a kid. I, I went to a C of E primary school, but it didn't really. I never really felt much weight of religion in, in my life. And um, I find it fascinating how someone like Blatty might square his faith with his commercial concerns. Like You're in kale like, territory. She called him a sellout and said that, uh, you know, he was he's on a somewhat of a high horse in terms of his, what did she call it? Um, pro, uh almost like he was a prophet in in the writing of this thing okay. but he was also selling it to cosmopolitan and national Enquirer and uh-huh. re- releasing it on the pages of these kind of magazines um and tabloided it yeah yeah because, so there's elements yeah. of that there's a contradiction yeah i mean you know it not for me to 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 dictate to anyone what they do with either their faith or their artistry or mm. their commercial interests i just i do find it interesting that the film kind of um, can um, especially in the fear of God, the 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 priests who worked on the film as technical consultants and were in the film, yeah, uh, justified the use of some of the most aggressive language and visuals I've seen in any film, and I include in that some of the real fucking filth that I've watched from yeah. some dirty like grindhouse studios. The sequence with the crucifix remains possibly the worst thing I have seen on film. Can I mention there that, that it's it's often referred to as a, a crucifix masturbation, which is mm. something you'd probably imagine in a in a later career Jean Luc Godard film or something. Mm. But really, it's a genital mutilation, yeah. Yeah, a bloody yeah. genital mutilation. And when she says "Let Jesus fuck you," when I first saw it, I thought that was being directed at the mother i thought that was being directed at i, I think there's some doctors that no it's only the it's only ellen burston in that this, point right? yeah because they just uh, lick me and it's just she punches a doctor early and then she says when she yeah, says yeah. lick me and I, I can't i can't remember who's in no, I think it's, it's, just, just, no, it's just her it, it's only ellen burston after the, the, the um the, the other people are closed yeah. off because the chair closes the door and that's the, right it's earlier when she room. punches one of the doctors, slaps him across the face. Yeah. Yeah. So in, in that one, she's saying, I, I always thought she was saying, let Jesus fuck you to 
to the mother because that's where it's directed. But it's the demon saying it to Reagan. The the, the demon yeah. is saying to give in, give into this, which makes yeah. it in, incredibly disturbing. Oh yeah, deeply disturbing. It's it's really striking. That that scene is completely shocking. It's the the crucifix, the lick me, that you know, like getting the onto the mother as well the telekinesis the head spinning around it's all grotesque and horrible and it's just it's abuse what i found interesting was that there were priests two priests who worked on the film and were talking about the film 25 years later justifying stuff like this whereby removed from the context of it being a story about a, a, a possession where written by a guy who was an avowed catholic not a fucking chance would any of these people defend any of that stuff and so i guess that's why it becomes an interesting point as far as how far does your faith take you and how far do your commercial interests then contradict that um it makes for an a, a fascinating case as far as how this film is embraced potentially by people who otherwise would aggressively reject it because of how how awful like the stuff that happens is it's whether or not they justify it through saying that you need to shape people out of apathy i don't know well there's two things there like i think it's like a pendulum and the as as bad as it gets on the side of the demon the the priests seem to to read it as uh, there's also good so it, it's uh, how, however dark it gets and uh and despicable uh, there's also the counterbalance of 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 good to that. Uh, the mechanical effects are terrific in in this film. They went to the degree of actually physically painting the wires for the levitation and things. So when you see that levitation, you don't see the wires because they've been painted the same color as the set. So uh, it's like digital removal, but but actually done practically. And but but there's a couple of moments like the dummy when the dummy appears that I, I do find slightly hokey now. And I think that that might elicit a, a giggle from some people. Can we talk about Linda Blair? Because I think it's important, uh, one, to recognise a performance at such a young age and also just the maturity that, it, that she must have to have been able to kind of turn up on set. And the one thing I would have loved to have seen is I would have loved to have seen Freakin's kind of rehearsal time with Linda Blair to get her mentally prepared for the role. Mm. Because I think mm. that's where... He's won. <clears throat> well, and they they they've clearly um, kind of nailed it. Because if I were her age doing this, I would think it was a right belly laugh. Because you know you don't really think about the the wider implications of what's and you get to say swear words, brilliant, wicked, um, and no one's going to tell you off. Um, so in order for freak in order for freaking to kind of get her to be sort of in the headspace where. Don't be affected by this. I don't know whether he went down the route of saying this is all fantasy. Enjoy it. It's, I think it's more though that she was so mature and understanding of, of the element of acting and, and and what it means for it. That's why she got the role right because mm-hmm. she could handle it and she did have a yeah. grasp on it from the very beginning. Right, Matt? Completely. She uh, detached it, as far as I could tell. She said, it, "It's yeah. not me. It's the character." Yeah, and uh, even the things she didn't understand, and she was protected a little bit, Gally. She they had Eileen Dietz, who was the body double, who did some of the crucifix masturbation, not all of it. She the hand, did the crotch grabbing as well, crotch grab, and I think the lick me because it's yeah. shot from the back. And she also did the spider walk, and um, she's cool actually, Eileen Dietz, and she's also the face of Pazuzu, that subliminal face that flashes yeah. up. 
because that was part of a makeup test that was done when they were trying to figure out what the demon was going to look like and freaking just spliced it in. But um, I, I think what happened with her was um, it was it was quite troubling because America, like the same way America went mad for the Beatles and sort of blamed it on the Beatles. They went hysterical and then blamed it on the Beatles. They sort of did the same thing with her. They they felt like she was genuinely evil and a lot, she had death threats, which she's reluctant to talk about for obvious reasons. And uh she had sort of driven this hysteria through this performance and then it came back on her. She's a lovely person by all accounts, but it came back on her as if she was actually a devilish yeah. kind of person. That's, mad. That's wild, isn't it? I yeah. think it's testament to her character as well, though, that she went, she she was in the heretic, right? Exorcist 2, right? But yes. Isn't yeah. she doing another Exorcist sequel with David Gordon Green this year? There is a sequel, a direct sequel to the original 1973 that we're discussing uh, as if, presumably as if the others haven't happened, crazy. which is very trendy now. Uh, like it's, it's I, testament to her that she returns the role and, and everything. And she did, was it re- Repossessed? Well, she was in Nielsen, Repossessed, yeah. Which is yes. insane to me. You've got well. to own it, Patrick. I mean, if you've got well, a she thing. Did. <laughs> and you, you consider like, I, I work with children a lot and believe me, it's a hard job. Be, from a security point of view, from a like, is everything okay point of view for me? It's all whenever I have children, and it's always uh, there on my mind. And is everything okay? Is everything right? I've got the toilets ready. I've got the food ready. I've got the, like the hours, and the, the, the children are so protected. And for me, it's like, amazing to see that Linda Blair's thrown around in a rig on a bed that's just like proper throwing her around, and she's doing all of that. I, I don't know how you, you, you do that these days. Like to achieve it properly, it's amazing that you can. But she, I think you said it there, Matt. She's so like not shrugging it off, but she's so uh, charming and says that's filmmaking. And she's a, and she was absolutely the right person for this role. It feels. Can we talk about uh, freaking as far as because Matt, you had this in your notes, and I think yeah. it is important. And we've we've. We discuss this at times with with big directors, and I think Freakin is absolutely a big director. Um, but as I say, interesting that I don't know if he's got the cultural um, legs of, say, a Kubrick, um, possibly because he didn't have maybe as big a uh, filmography uh, as far as successes. You know, French Connection, Exorcist, I mean, not a bad double bill, I'd suggest. Um, so Freakin, a bit like uh, Kubrick, utilitarian in his attitude. Which basically means the ends justify the means. It's okay if Shelley's hair falls out because the performance is... Mm. Obviously, this is a kind of philosophical like view of the world, which is you know the, the best outcome with the greatest impact. Mm. You know, let's not worry too much about the one individual who... Um, you know, so in this case, Bernstein's back. It's everyone going. It's, it's everyone. Um, does it? Did freaking slap a priest? I mean, that is. Yeah, he, did. he, he, he slapped <laughs> Father Dyer to get the 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 performance out of him when he's given the last rites to Karis. He got the shaky hand. Wasn't he firing guns around the set? Yeah, well? I can go through some of them if you want. He he was firing guns on set. The the moment in the film is actually when uh, Father Karis is startled by a ringing uh, rotary phone that's next to him, which were loud enough anyway to, to start, startle me. But uh, he, he wanted to, he fired a gun and he would do it, uh, you know, <laughs> a lot. I liked uh, what Max von Sydow said, Matt, when he said, came in on certain, he went to the 
first lady or something um where's the guns today <laughs> well the handguns over there and the shotguns over there <laughs> he, he wasn't the first to do it there was uh john ford would do it apparently and uh, the director george stevens did any any methods necessary during the production of the diary of anne frank which was like the legendary one where people would he, he would fire guns so he stole it from there uh you you talked about ellen burstyn who was yanked across the room she was 41 at the time uh she was yanked across the room against the wall and landed on her tailbone or cock yeah did, didn't she ask for the previous take to calm down a bit and she couldn't take it but freaking yeah. encourage the stuntman or the sfx coordinator to... so there's a guy called marcel vacuter i don't know how you pronounce it yeah. but he was the special effects technician who would be yanking people around on wires you mentioned the linda blair bit um yeah. Uh, but before before you're, you're right patrick she said uh take it easy and then uh friedkin said to the effects technician really give it to her this time and that's the the <laughs> shot that's in the film and it's really brutal you can you can tell but the, the ethics of that galley like they kept rolling and they knew she was in pain and they just because it's handheld it, it was like tmz or something they just went <laughs> close up <laughs> right up to her uh, well this is where the power dynamics have shifted haven't they i mean you imagine uh i don't know that scarlett johansson in david gordon green's exorcist and they decide to pull that oh johansson's apologies it's like it's the same as uh as van or von insider um, <laughs> i cannot do these scandinavian names um but <laughs> Anyway, you imagine. Gally, I think David, blast Scandinavia. <laughs> David, David Gordon <laughs> Green deals with Greek names. Yeah, David Gordon Green gets a tap on the shoulder, and they go, "Come with me." Oh, I mean, yeah. On, on Halloween 2018, he's not shoving Jamie Lee Curtis down a staircase properly. Like, no, it's. I feel like the um, this becomes the myth. This becomes the mythos built up around these directors. Like, oh, that guy is going to go there. And I think back in the day, this was sold as almost like a kind of bravado. Mm. You know, like the you know, it, it's like well, this is what marks them out as great artists. But I think that um, the reappraisal that's coming around for this kind of technique is long overdue because it's fucking bullshit. You can't injure people if you have if you have had to stamp your authority onto a production by essentially being a tyrant and a bully, then you have failed to inspire your collaborative artists that you're working alongside. If you have to shoot a gun at somebody to get them to look scared. You have not coaxed the performance out of them. You have assaulted them. Well, Jason Miller objected uh, outright. He yeah. said, "Don't ever fucking do that again." I'm an yeah. actor. I don't. I don't need the guns. But a lot but of people know, enjoyed it. Um, apparently, but I. A lot of people know about the acting stuff, but um, everyone knows about the act the way he treated actors. But there's a there's a couple of other things. Uh, they hired Bernard Herman, who did uh, Psycho and Taxi Driver, to do the the score, and they had a working methods clash uh when uh herman said that freakin should erase the whole iraq segment because it made no sense uh and then essentially just hand the film over to him and he's going to score the entire thing with a church organ and then uh freakin just said no and fired him on the spot Whoa. uh and then Didn't he um he, he hired lalo schifrin he did his... and lalo yeah. schifrin did cool hand luke bullet and dirty harry with three of the and he was a very uh fashionable kind of uh composer of the time and he he put together this really sort of cacophonous uh wall-to-wall -wall music attempt at scoring it and uh, apparently friedkin said this is mexican music i hate mexican music <laughs> and then he threw the reel-to-reel -reel recording across the street and said that's where that belongs and then he got fired on the spot as well so he was doing it 
all, all over the shop, not just with the actors. He was mm. doing it with the crew. Too. He, he also like played up to the uh, mythology of the film, didn't he? To the public. Yeah. You know, and he, he I think he he wound people up that way like saying, "Yeah, it's real or yeah. He said that they used like a zero like a gravitational pull thing to do some of the effects. He would make up all kinds of nonsense and mm, uh, yeah, mm. you know. He's a proper little huckster. And I I think the, you know the idea of it being <laughs> a cursed a cursed production which there is a documentary on Shudder a, a series called Cursed Films. Oh, that's right. this is this is, you know, this is year zero for the the cursed films. You know? We tackled it in which which episode we did. We talked about the phony curses, maybe the crow. They've done the crow, yeah. So, um, uh, the thing is that the documentary, in fairness, will go into the, you know, oh, this happened and this happened, this happened. By the end of the documentary, of course, it's just well, you and and yeah, Van Sida says the same thing in the fear of God. It's like you work with people on like a risky thing like this for an entire year, somebody mm. will die. Like, yeah, they they because I, I think they're saying are, like. Nine nine people died. It's like, yeah. well, how big is the crew? But if you listen to the way Ellen, the way Ellen Burstyn will go through it, she'll be like, "And we had an assistant cameraman, and his brother died." It's like, well, I mean, <laughs> <find out>. the <laughs> guy who refrigerated the set, he died. Yeah. Yeah. It's like Spinal Tap Dreamers. Yeah, yeah. But um, also, he he wanted to exercise the set, and uh, uh, the the priests refused. Um, I'm, I'm, it, it was just a nonsensical thing, but you're right, Dev. He's uh, at some point he became uh, a person selling his movie, and uh, he he would go to any lengths in in terms of publicity too. Yeah, and you you can't argue that this film didn't have an absolute mammoth cultural imprint. So why question it? All I would say about his techniques is it's a bit like Sissy Skinner, isn't it? Uh, in Hot Fuzz. Uh, <laughs> anything to energize my workforce. Uh, so that's that freaking perspective on these things. Where's my gun? Um, by the way, uh, just another uh, quick one, actually. Um, it's only because uh, I hadn't seen this film in so long and we watched Halloween, John Carpenter's Halloween, not a million miles away. 100% he watched this film and said, hold my beer. I'm doing a shot like that with the leaves. It's like straight out of uh, Halloween, right? When she's yeah. walking and the tubular... Uh, yeah. That's uh, the only time you know. Tubular Bells comes on. And and yeah, it sort of permeates the whole thing. It's three Wait, times it? in the film. I counted it three times. There's a blast of it in At the, the end. end. Uh, yeah. When she's walking along and there's another... Oh, bollocks, I'll have to find it. There's another hint of it. It comes in somewhere around Karis being in the house. Mm. Um, With his I mother or, or to, her house? I have to find it. Uh, no, it, it's um, Chris's house. I'll have to find it for you. Oh, but okay. I counted, I counted uh, three times. Yeah. Speaking of of Halloween, though, when you're saying that maybe Carpenter has definitely absorbed some of it, um, the use of a synthesized score in an unusual time signature to create a sense of dread. Yeah. I believe uh, the longer the, the note. Score is in, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Halloween is, I, I believe, in seven eight, and I think I read somewhere that Tubular Bells is in fifteen to. 16 time signature right. i don't know i had it looked up i don't know time signature. it's one of those it's bizarre things but... that has no beginning and no end it, it just yeah. keeps yeah keeps and it's gally's uh gally's favorite live um yeah but it it loops back to the start um uh it loops back to the start of the melody like a half a bar before you would expect it to that's why it kind of Right. That's why it throws your brain out. It's it's not quite a full bar of music at the end. Matt, <laughs> I was walking past some nuns. <laughs> I saw a set of stairs. And they're incredibly steep. And I thought to myself, 
how do I navigate these stairs without turning my head all the way around and ending up like a bloody mess? Well, <laughs> I need to have a word with some critics. So um, on the corner there appears to be a bag of Pauline kale. So why don't you tell hey. us what the critics said uh, about The Exorcist? Very good. That was great. Um, she she was scathing. I sent it to you um, in, in the chat. We've had a look at it. Not on. But she... She felt like it was um, nothing short of just um, mechanical scares. Oh, sorry, no more than mechanical scares. It had no feeling, and it was tired. Um, you oh, you can just, read that's it. That's just Karis, though. He's not. Uh, <laughs> you, you can find elements <laughs> of it quite easily online, because it's one of her more more famed reviews, I think, because it really does um, contradict a lot of people's opinions on the film. Uh, she attacked Blatty. Uh, for stating its uh, apostolic work, that, that like the idea that he is some kind of it's reportage from a from an apost- an apostle, and um, she basically accuses him of selling out, as we said earlier, with, to the National Enquirer and, and Cosmo, um, and she refers to the crushing blunt wittedness of the movie, um, which uh, you know she she really had an axe to grind with with this one, didn't enjoy it at all. Um, Eber and Roper, as our our favourite Siskel had kicked the bucket. Um, Ebert said uh, it's it's a good and evil story with uh, resonance, uh, but he really went after the recut version because this was done in the year two thousand. He said that the nonsensical dialogue at the end, the coda that we mentioned, uh, he he said it's like a comedian who's forgotten the punchline of his own joke. Mm, okay. The movie is over. What are they blathering about? It destroys the mood. And uh, Ebert could see that Friedkin was happy with the film all those years and he never touched it. And all of a sudden now it's a marketing ploy to get this thing out there again. And I think Friedkin enjoyed, you know, flying his name up to the top I of the flagpole again. for him as well, yeah. Yeah, and... And the money, Galley. And the yeah, money. Yeah, of course. Of course. <laughs> we could all do with the a bit more. Helps, we could all do with a new pool. Yeah, uh, yeah. But Roper, Roper said uh, Burstyn was wonderful. Uh, the pacing was masterful. But he, he, you know, said that, uh, what's the problem? You know, we're getting out of our seats. The movie's over. Uh, and he didn't mind the coda, the softening of that of that coda. But I, I disagree with that. I, you know, you want to be hit hard at the end, don't you? I, I do find that it's um uh it can be an interesting dialogue between a much older filmmaker looking back at something that what they would probably consider to be a less mature version of themselves creating this work. It's like they're in dialogue with themselves, but I don't think they should be. No. You know? I think no. you can talk about it. You can do retrospective documentaries. You can talk about we should have done this and we should have done that. But once you start getting in there and changing the guts of the thing that you all, you and your collaborators slaved away to make, a great expense to yourself and now you feel like you can do better than that guy yeah well i've gone into it on the essay it's this whole idea that once you've been nominated for an oscar once it's been in in theaters and people have experienced it it's no longer yours it doesn't belong to you anymore it's like when paul mccartney tells us um martha my dears about his dog it's like i don't want to know paul It, it, it doesn't belong to you anymore whatever your interpretation of this is it's, it doesn't belong to you because other people have, have brought it into their lives and it's impacted them. It's the biggest film in the world and he's going back and trying to add another shot and now he's, you know, messing around with it. But yeah, if you want to hear more scorn, you can read the uh, 
read the blog. Yes, yes, indeed, it's time. I'm going to ask the questions. You're going to give the answers. Pop quiz, hotshot. Uh, just a reminder of the scores. We have Matt on five, Devlin on five, Galley on two after his slight comeback last week, uh, last episode, excuse me. Watch your buzzers then, please. I'll start with you, Matt. La plume de ma tante. Ah! And... <laughs> uh, Gally, what's your buzzer? The power of Christ compels you! Oh, he's, I hope he compels you to get more points. And Devlin, what's your buzzer, please? You're gonna die up there. Oh, oh. chilling. Chilling yeah. from Devlin. Do I have the urine sound after? Who knows? Find out. <laughs> <laughs> All right, okay, question one, nice and easy. Question one, what's the name of Reagan's babysitter? La plume de ma tante. Ah! It's Sharon. Sharon is correct, Matt, for the first point. Question two, question two, what's the title of the film that Chris is acting in? La plume de ma tante. Ah! I heard you say Crash Course. Oh, he was listening to Storytime, that is correct. Crash Sorry, Course yeah. is the title of the film. It was a Warner Brothers production. I it was a Warner Brothers production as well. And another um, problematic director in Burke Dennings. Question three. Question three, even though Matt's got two out of three right here, he's probably going to win. How many times did Kinderman see Chris's film, Angel? The power of Christ compels you! Galley? Three. Uh-uh. Sorry, mate. That's a, that's a zero for you today. You're gonna die up there. Oh, Devlin, chilling. Five? La plume de ma tante. Ah! Matt! It's six! It is six! Did you know that? We're holding yeah, back. I, did. I saw it six times. times. Yeah. Oh man, freaking <laughs> so smart, like the devil's number six. Ah! And how many times he shot Michael Myers. <laughs> yeah! Matt is the winner! Well done, Matt. This week's winner, oh, three yeah. questions out of three. You're like a motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just going to say it one more time because I'm not going to say it again. Bloody Nazi. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, uh, final thoughts and summaries and recommendations. So, I'll start with you, Devlin. Uh, final thoughts on The Exorcist and would you recommend it to our listeners? Final thoughts were that uh, this was a film that I watched for the first time in quite a long time. I remembered it... Uh, um, being something that I'd found very powerful and uh, it remained so it is a um a completely uh, enthralling experience from start to finish and one that I think you would have to be trying quite hard uh to 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 reject were you to not be affected by it very deeply I think it's the sort of film that um we said that sometimes people would chuckle at some of the more outre moments in it. I think that that is an attempt to try and diffuse something and to try and reject uh, how it works on you because uh, it is deeply affecting. Um, Sean of the shenanigans, the wider context around it, the the curses and the and and the the the, the fraught making of. I think um, you can get into that if you want. I think you can also just set it to one side and find an extremely fascinating and uh, a film made in a way that I don't think that any other film has quite managed to capture. Um, It fuses that sort of um, 
deceptively shambling 70s style but it always knows exactly what it's doing and it always knows exactly what it wants from you and uh it, it's all the more intriguing for that so um an extraordinary film and all definitely worth a rewatch and uh one of those films that probably comes under the category for me of something that i will now put aside for probably quite some time uh and then come back to a few years down the line i don't think it's something that i'm going to be watching frequently but it is something that I'm very, very glad that I got to watch again. So, uh, yeah, big thanks to Matt for for picking this one because it had been a long time coming and and uh, it's just a fantastic watching experience. Yeah, really powerful. Uh, how about you, Patrick? It's a huge recommendation because it's excellent and and not like the recommendation that was what happened to me in the 90s that was you've got to see this film because it's you know it's vomiting it's this demonic girl it's the head spinning around it's all, all the kind of um the 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 uh not cheap thrills that's not what i'm looking for here. just the, the tricks the 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 selling points to, to a film that may hook uh, a younger audience but i I watched it when I was 22, I watched it this week, and the the first thing, and we haven't spoken about it that much, but or, or waxed Friedkin's car greatly, or even um, uh, Roysman's, is the, the film looks fucking awesome. It looks amazing. I was really taken by, I know Roysman did shoot it, but the Iraq sequence, and then how deep and beautiful it's really shot in georgetown as well mm. um it's every time we go into reagan's room it, it's different it's there's something going on this extraordinary shot of pazuzu's statue appearing in reagan's room with her uh like agonized body in the spotlight and it comes up that's really striking will stay with me it, actually <laughs> saying that the hairs have stood up thinking <laughs> about it on my arm which is incredible like the, the the sound of merin the sound design of it is extraordinary the scream of merin from the top of the stairs the the, the hum of animals and unknown noises throughout is a real sensory thing that's true horror in this film and it's it has to be one of the best horrors I've ever seen. And not because of uh, the, the things I mentioned earlier, the, the, the selling points, the, the big ticket moments, but just the um, the drama of it, the, the psychological drama and turmoil and trauma and abuse. It's it really, really become, like builds to a crescendo. And I was deeply impressed this week. Um, I love the notion and I completely agree with it that you can get out of the film what you put into it, whether you are uh, of any religious faith or something going on in your life at the moment. That there's, it may disturb you in ways we haven't discussed today. And it's kind of unnerving to, to consider the film that way as well in um, a domestic environment of a young girl. It's... it's very striking it's the performances are excellent and i was yeah you can tell i was quite impressed with it this week and matt do you, how does it sit with you now uh, i think certain films sort of carry you away on on like a wave of momentum and we sort of vanish into them and and we forget our own lives for a couple of hours and i think this is one of the best examples of of that that i can think of um it's a truly cinematic experience and i wish i could experience that sort of 
uh, communal terror of being in the cinemas in in seventy mm. three, and my my parents were actually really lucky to have, you know, gone through it. I mean, it was probably quite traumatic, but uh, they're not really horror film fans, but they were there at this kind of uh, um, sea change in in the genre, which is really great. Um, is it the best horror ever? It's up there, I think. Um, I'd maybe say scariest. I always say this one and the Blair Witch Project were the two films that scared me the most. But this scared me on a, a deeper level than, than than you know a found footage movie. It it really gets gets under your skin. Um, I think The Exorcist. If The Exorcist is spontaneity, then The Shining is more about like a perfectionism. It's got like this kind of um, look to it. I'm sure we'll do it one day, but I don't want to write another book length essay so i won't choose the shining for a while i think i i love that it's a real downer i don't think there's enough downer endings the 70s were terrific for these downer endings i agree with you galley it's the greatest era of american cinema it's best directors best films yeah we, we touched on the idea of who wins does god win or does the devil win and patrick you're right i think freaking made a film that has that ambiguity at the end and you take from it what you ultimately you ultimately take from it what you bring to it. And Commode agrees. He said every, Commode said every time he watches it, it's a different film. And I think you're right, Patrick, when you say that whatever's going on in your life colors it. And that's really an incredible achievement for, for a film. Um, I think it, it has the courage to ask questions that, that are unanswerable, but throughout the course of the film, it's provocative enough intellectually to, to to hold the film together. And it's a film that can be experienced repeatedly, which I always admire. I think upon release, it was the most successful film in film, in film history and, and a sociological phenomenon, as we've said. Uh, I think it sort of goes beyond film and beyond genre into something else. And uh, I don't think it'll be repeated. I've probably been able to rewatch this one more than I, I have with some of the other films that we've discussed. I feel like I could put it on now and still experience a, um, kind of a new, a new film in many ways, just from the perspectives that you've all brought to it too. I think you've, you've colored my experience of it. So thank you for uh, your attentiveness and, and all your notes and all your thoughts. Gally, would you like to give us your final thoughts? Yep, sure. Um, so William Peter Blatty, the writer, described watching the film as a provocation that will elicit an emotional response, whether good or bad, that you, the viewer, are alive during the runtime of The Exorcist. And we are in violent agreement on that one. Um, I think this one may, for me, rival Jaws for one of the best films we've covered so far on the show. Um, I walked away from my viewing in like a state of constant thought and reflection, kind of like trying to work out what I'd seen, trying to like unpack it and the strands of the film and the characters and the themes and what does it all mean. Um, I, I'm going to disagree with you slightly, Matt, in that um, I, I guess it's just, it's, it's semantics really, but I don't think the film is scary in the traditional sense, which is kind of what you were saying, but just in case people get confused about like scary, um, like I was never scared, but it's unnerving, it's tense, and it's harrowing. Uh, and I found that to be, like, I haven't had that in a film for a very long time. Uh, and it challenged me. It's a strong recommendation for me. 
Um, I would caveat that recommendation with a warning. Uh, the warning is of heady themes and disturbing imagery and also a slower, quieter pace for for a horror film that I think some modern audiences or people coming to it for the first time might not be used to. But stick with it. The split pea juice is worth the squeeze, uh, as they say. Um, you know, it's one of the things I love about the show is I probably would have just kept this in the, yeah, I've seen The Exorcist. I've seen the, the memes and stuff. Like, don't need mm. to see it again. Uh, and I was really glad to go back. And, yeah. you know, like I said, I don't think I'm going to watch it every year. But yeah. I know the next time I watch it, I know I'm in for something. Um, and that's, you know, that's that's what it's all about, right? Um, excellent. Uh, where then, Matt, and I'm sure you've done this, unless you have yeah. missed this vital bit of information out on your blog, um, where can our listeners source the many versions of The Exorcist? Well, this gets a bit tricky. If you're an absolute purist, uh, I would go to the trouble of seeking out the Dr. Sapperstein preservation version, which I've linked to via our blog. Um, is that digitally, Matt, or is that a hard thing you can get? It's uh, <coughs> torrented. Uh, <coughs> <and> I, I <coughs> think it may be available for for download. I mean, it says for educational purposes that they suggest that you buy the DVD as well or something like that to to justify it. But I, I've got several copies of this that I've bought, so I don't feel bad about um, uh, finding this version and, and watching it. And it's just like the despecialized versions of Star Wars. It's really the only way to experience mm, yeah. it as it was in 1973 with the Oscar-winning mono sound and the Owen Owen Roisman's greens. Um, but if you're not into bootleg versions, and, and I completely understand it's a bit of a hassle, um, I'd do what Patrick did and, and go for the, the double-disc Blu-ray uh, and watch the theatrical cut. As I said, it has the only some thing... terrific um, special features in uh... Oh, yeah. And it's there's some really there's a documentary and all sorts and sorry I interrupted you there but no. it was just the one addition to it. Yeah, well, it's got Freakin's um, uh, Garth Marenghi intro and a, and a great commentary, <laughs> and uh, you can use the long version as a fucking coaster or something if you want to because it's useless. And on 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 the other hand, uh, the, the theatrical Blu-ray is a really great picture um, in in yes, terms of the. Stunning they've they've altered the colors to be um more reflective of, of reality the, the there's less of that green tint and it's it's more of a uh, probably slightly bluer but it looked quite natural to me it looked looked terrific they've cleaned it up beautifully and the only difference in patrick's version from the original is that that jump cut when karis becomes the demon they've mm-hmm. digitally blended it and they've done it quite seamlessly and uh, yeah it's I, very I thought, effective actually um, mm. un- unfortunately, it may not be available as Galley found in streaming services in the theatrical cut. Uh, Devlin, uh, would you like to correct me? <laughs> no, no. If if I can say that, um, obviously, other platforms are available. But if you go onto Amazon and look up The Exorcist on Prime Video, you will find two versions that you can rent and buy. Ah. Just check the duration mm. and the description. And uh, I managed to find that nice, beautifully cleaned up theatrical cool so in the uk you can rent on amazon chili google play apple all the usual places (laughs) uh if you're in america uh the same uh amc on demand has it as well and voodoo 
And Lovely. if you're in Korea, you're <laughs> out of luck. You can't you can't get it anywhere at the moment. So get the Sapphire. Still banned there. Yeah. <laughs> just just simply uncertified. It's not actually banned. <laughs> <laughs> Dreadful for the mind. Very, very good. Okay, well, um, Devlin, in the kind of the way that a William Peter Blatty or maybe a William Freakin slash Garth Marenghi would do, let's hawk some shit. So, um, <laughs> why don't you tell uh, what do you tell our listeners where they can uh, support the show financially? I'm I'm, I'm politely uh, suggesting that you give us money rather than demanding it. Um, uh, Matt, as, as has previously said, will be, uh, uh, his essay will be up on rewindmoviecast.com. That also contains links to all of the various platforms that you can find this episode on archives of every episode we've done so far, including essays and other special things that we've done over the years. Uh, click on the shop tab. That'll take you to Devlin does drawing dot tmail.com also linked down in the show notes right here that's where we have rewind movie podcast merchandise alongside t-shirts posters prints etc based on many of the films that we have covered i don't believe there's anything from the exorcist in there yet although who knows uh i don't do these things when i should so it might turn up in five months how about a ouija board Um, (laughs) rewind movie podcast ouija board no, we yeah. need the BBFC um, classification card for the Exorcist. Yes, the X. We're, we're, yeah. we are. We are going to work on that. Um, uh, also, um, if you uh, email is where the, um, the, the the main store is held. There's also a Redbubble link which has a few items on it, including Pazuzu uh, shower cap. Yeah, that would be great. <laughs> Terminator <laughs> shirt and my jet from Gladiators shirt, which, as previously mentioned, was taken down due to copyright infringement. <laughs> so, uh, Ooh, naughty. Um, but Redbubble don't give a shit. Um, yes, that's where we keep all the stuff. Rewindmoviecast.com. So if you enjoy what we do, then please like, share, subscribe, spread the gospel. There has never an episode had more meaning okay so yes <laughs> if you if you could do that that'd be amazing it brings more people to the party we encourage listener requests we've had a few we've got the last of the mohicans is coming so we need to do that Ooh. at some point yeah, yeah. you know oh, wow. daniel day lewis i don't follow you english indeed and we haven't done a michael mann film yet which feels you know incredibly not cool so we should do one um but yes Please uh, do that. That'd be amazing. Um, Spotify, Apple, wherever you listen to your podcast. But either way, we appreciate your support and we hope you enjoy what we do. That's about it, really, team. So, shall we say a goodbye, Zanti? I cast you out on clean spirit. <laughs> it's Gally doing a dreadful Max impression. He's Max, my friend. Yeah. In Glasgow. Stay safe, everyone. So, what's for dessert? It's Devlin in London. There seems to be an alien pubic uh, in my drink. <laughs> it's Patrick in London. La plume de matante. It's Matt in South Korea. Oh, thanks for listening, everyone. And we'll catch you next time on the Rewind Movie Podcast. Because I gotta have faith. I gotta have faith.